All right, I'm going to bow. We're going to be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 7 still. Lord, we just ask you to bless this time as we look at the, the section of uh, 1 Kings that you bless and guide us as we look at this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so we, last week we talked about Solomon building his house and, and his house in Lebanon, and he built a house for Pharaoh's daughter. And we talked about how his house was bigger than the, the temple. Uh, didn't lay it all with gold like the temple, but so he didn't spend as much money on his house, but he made a bigger house and he built multiple houses for him and his, and his wife uh, and, and all those things. Then in verse 13 where we left off, And King Solomon sent and fetched Hiram out of Tyre. He was a widow's son of the tribe of Nephetali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in brass, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and cunning to work all men all works in brass. And he came to King Solomon and wrought all his works. For he cast two pillars of brass of 18 inches high apiece, and a line of 12 cubits did encompass around uh, either of them about. And he made two capiters of molten brass and set them at the top of the pillars. The height of each capiter was five cubits, and the height of each capiter and the other capiter was five cubits and nets of checkered work and reefs of chains for the capiters which were upon the top of the pillars, seven for one capiter and seven for the other capiter. And he made the pillars and two rows together upon the one network and to cover the capiters that were upon the top with pomegranates and so he did for the other capiter. And for the capiters that were at the top of the pillars were of lily work and in the porch four cubits. And the capiters upon the two pillars had pomegranates also above over against the belly upon, which was upon the network and the pomegranates were 200 in a row round about the other capiter. And he set the pillars in the porch of the temple and he set the right pillar and he called the name of it Jachin and on the top of it and, and set it up the left pillar which he called thereof Boaz. And upon the top of the pillars was the work and so was the work of the pillars finished. Now we had all kinds of words in there that probably nobody knows what they are so we're going to go through and work <laughs> Take this apart. Translation, I it all. all right, yours, yours is better. <laughs> so it starts out with the King Solomon sent to fetch Hiram out of Tyre. Now remember, Hiram is the king of Tyre. So he can't just go and take him out of there without. So basically, he's invited him to come to the celebration of the, temp, the opening of the temple. It's kind of an interesting word that they used, fetch, but it received or accepted. In other words, he invited him to come to him. And then all of a sudden, we get into this, he was a widow's son of Naphtali, which no, we're no longer talking about Hiram. We're talking about the worker that Hiram sends <laughs> to do the work. And it just, there's no gap there, there's no, there's no way to do it, but we, we look at this and we're, we're looking at the fact that he sends somebody who is of the tribe of Naphtali, which is one of the Jew, tribes of Judah, and his father was from Tyre, so he lives in Hiram's place, and he works in brass, and is filled with wisdom and understanding and cunning to work in all works of brass. If you remember back when we went all the way back into Exodus, when they were looking for people to work this, those were the exact same things. They had wisdom and understanding and ability to work in metals and in cloth and gems. This guy, only brass. So we're, we're having slightly different. He's not quite as qualified as the guys that God raised up for Exodus, but he's, he's going to do a good job for them. And 
he came to King Solomon and he did his work. And he's going to make some very beautiful things by the descriptions that we have here. And it says he cast two pillars of 18 cubits tall. Now, 18 cubits is approximately 47 feet. Wow. All right. These are not short pillars. Forty-seven feet, approximately, because a cubit is about 18 inches or a foot and a half. So he's building very tall pillars, and it says there was a line of 12 cubits that did encompass them, which means that the diameter of these pillars is approximately uh, five and three quarters feet. All right, these are very round pillars. These are, not, these are not little skinny posts. These are more of the type of pillars that you see in the Roman Colosseums and everything. Really big, you know, six feet around. You know, most of us couldn't even reach around the, the, the pillar. They're just shy of six feet around. And they're eight, uh, and they're 47 feet high. And these are the pillars that he's making. These pillars are going to stand on either side of the door to the temple. Now remember they the like whole pillars. Huh? They like he, he loves making Solomon loves making yeah. pillars. He's made he made those pillars all around his house and his porches and all that stuff. He is enjoying pillars. Now remember the height of the temple is only 30 uh, cubits, so he's making pillars that are pretty tall, but they're not the really extending above the height of the temple. And these are going to be made out of brass. Now, why he's making brass pillars outside of a golden building is a whole other story. So these are solid brass? I don't know if they're solid brass or not. It doesn't say. He wor he's a worker in brass. Brass and bronze are the same thing. Okay. He's, he's a worker in brass, but I don't think these are solid brass pillars. Yeah. Um, they could be, but it doesn't say. It doesn't say they were overlaid with brass. It doesn't say that. So it is possible, you know, I can't imagine what that big a pillar of brass would uh, weigh. Uh, I'd hate to be the one trying to move it if it was solid. But it doesn't, normally the Bible says that it was overlaid with gold or overlaid with brass. Now it's kind of interesting that at the beginning of the temple they're going to put brass on the outside of it because brass stands for judgment. And the temple does bring judgment. You brought your sacrifices in to sat satisfy judgment. I'm not sure that's what it means here, but that's normally what brass means in the, in the scriptures is judgment. And it says he made two capitors or uh, toppers for it. <laughs> they're, they're, they're toppers. And they're five, the, the top of these, these things are five cubits, which is seven and a half feet. So the crowning of these, of these uh, pillars had a five foot, uh, seven and a half foot tall <laughs> Topper, and these toppers are kind of described in here. So we have 47 and a half foot tall pillars with another seven and a half foot topper on it, and I'm sure that they were probably welded on, welded and soldered into place so that they didn't fall off. And it says, and then he had nets or lattice works and wreaths of chains all all attached to those. So. I can't even imagine what this, you've got this great big thing and then there's lattice, lattice coming down off of that and then he's putting all these reefs of on, on the lattice work of some sort of chains or something. Uh, and he's making this very 
beautiful thing. And again, he repeats that each capital uh, was, uh, then, then he goes on all these chains, that there were seven chains on each capital and seven chains for the other one, these reefs of chains. So he's hanging chains all over these, these things, or attaching chains, probably not hanging chains. So we have seven foot tall crowns on it with all kinds of lattice work on it. Then he attaches chains of probably bronze or brass on all of that. So, and it's kind of an amazing thing. You've got to think, 47 feet up, he's making all the decorations. How many people are really going to be able to see the 40, all those decorations up front, up, uh, up there in the top? Far or by God. So, because again, you know, this is a day before binoculars and all that stuff to be able to see that high and that well. And probably would look kind of good, kind of cool from a distance or even up front. I mean, if you've ever looked up in, you know, uh, it's kind of funny if you look in, especially around Kingman, they put the uh, cell towers and they put all the palm branches and make them look like a palm tree. And from a distance, they look like a palm tree. And you get up close and go, oh, that's not, that's not a palm tree. That's a whole bunch of metal up there. <laughs> that's kind of what you have here. From a distance, these probably look you know, very different than they did up close. Then he says he made the two pillars and two rows around about them in one lattice or network and covered the capitals upon the top with pomegranates. And so he did with the other. And when this is pomegranate, he's not talking about the fruit. He's talking about knob things that look like pomegranates, you know, big, big bul bulbous bulbs of brass, all right? And he's putting pomegranate-shaped things on the top, and he did it the same on the end. And then, if that wasn't enough, he made lily work on the top uh, in the porch in four, of four cubics, and that literally is the shape of the lily flower. So he's drawing flowers, he's carving flowers into all of this stuff. Uh, yeah, what this looked like, I'm kind of wondering what this would really would look like. I have trouble picturing, you know, tall post with a whole bunch of latticed work uh, brass with a bunch of chains hanging to it with a bunch of knobs, <laughs> knobs of brass hanging on it the size of pomegranates. And then on, and then on all of that, he etches in lilies. Like I see him doing it around the post. <laughs> but he says it's attached to the crown. Yeah. This is all at the top where nobody really is going to see it. Well, oh, of course, he's making it for the, he's making it either for Solomon and or for God. And this is we talked about this a little bit when we talked about a couple weeks ago. Over the years, the church has vacillated between doing elaborate, expensive edifices for God in the for the glory of God to then we come to the other side of it where people go, well, you spent way too much money going glorifying God. We're going to go just a two-by-four for people to sit on, you know, two-by-four benches for people to sit on and no comfort whatsoever and no, no beauty. And then, you know, it's looked down on by the guys that want to spend money. And, but it goes back and forth over the centuries, and we see it all over Europe. You'll see grand cathedrals. But if you go out sometimes and the things built a century later, and you see these hovels that barely exist anymore because there was no luxury, no beauty to it. And, and both sides have their, have their, their, their opinion. The, the ones who build the great cathedrals, that they're building it for the right reasons, to, for just to glorify God, not to impress people, it's good. 
and to just sit, you know use all your money to minister to the to the poor and to the needy and put as little as you can into your your building if you're doing it for the right reason that's good if you're doing it for the wrong reason on either side it's bad and Solomon right now is apparently doing it for the right reason or at least David who gave him the plans had the right reasons I'm gonna honor God I want a beautiful temple for God's honor and glory we're not told what Solomon's desire was on all of this now we get some indication in the book of Ecclesiastes that he wanted to build things for his honor now I don't know if that includes the temple because we don't know where he is this early in his life yet because we don't really are, we're not told but he's making little subtle decisions that aren't good and we've talked about that all along he keeps making bad decisions which are going to lead to his full downfall that Ecclesiastes tells us about when he totally walks away from God and tries to find God in everything under the sun and at this point we don't know how far down that path he is because there's nothing here to tell us and we see here he's building a great edifice toward God so this man is adding to that edifice and he's saying I want I can almost picture him saying okay I know nobody's gonna see this thing way up there but God is going to see it God is going to know that it was done for him and I'm going to give him that glory. I'm going to give him that glory that he literally was making it for God because nobody else was going to see it. Nobody else was going to climb the 47-foot pillar and, and see his work at the top of that post. That's not a lot of work. So he's, but this is the whole process. When we do things, are we doing it to be seen by man and to get man's glory, or are we doing it to be seen by God? And this is all about what our purpose is. If we're serving God, even just to try to get God's pleasure and let him, you know, see, God, I'm serving you so much. I deserve, I'm, I'm trying to earn myself out. And you're, doing it, you're doing things for the wrong reason. You might as well not do it. If you're doing, God, I just want to glorify and honor you, then it doesn't matter how small it is or how big it is, God gets that glory and he says the right reason. I, I'm going to give this man credit. I think he's doing it for God because I can't see him doing, you know, putting something up that high that nobody's going to see otherwise. Now, he may have had his own reasons. I don't know, but I'm going to say that I think he did it for the right reason. There's nothing there to tell us otherwise. Um, then it says, the calipers of the two pillars had pomegranates also above and against the, the belly, which was of, by the network, and the pomegranates were 200 in rows around about the other pomegranate. All right, so he's been making 400 pomegranates to hang on the top of these pillars and attaching them to the pillars. Uh, now the pillars are six foot round, uh, six foot, uh, are uh, seven and a half feet, what, what did I say? 12, cubit, 12 cubits around, so there's a lot of room around it. But that's a lot of pomegranates per cubit. <laughs> so, uh, and 12, and 12 cubits is about 18 feet. So that's a lot of cubits that he's putting around this thing, a lot of pomegranates around each pillar. And again, it's something that nobody's going to see. It's at the top. Now, he says he had put them on the belly, so right around, right around the pil pillar where the chapter uh, is, uh, is attaching, he's attached a bunch of, a bunch of these. So you, so you look up, and there's a bunch of round balls sitting at the bottom of the of the uh, top of you know the crown top of the of it and then he's put them around there and he's got chains hanging in he's got a lattice work hanging up there you know I hope he was a good <laughs> yeah <laughs> in today's world it better have been yes uh, 
But you know, we look at this and say he's done a great work, and I hope he's a great artist because apparently it was beautiful from all the history, it was beautiful. Uh, it sounds like it's overdone to me and, and too busy, but you know, he, he's, he's a master at it, he's got great wisdom, so whatever he did looked good. And it was a well-designed pattern on it. And so there's 200 of these pomegranates up there. And then he set the pillars in the porch of the temple, set the right-hand pillar, and he called it Jachen, which means he shall establish. So basically saying God will establish. And on the other, on the left side, he called it Boaz, which means in it is strength. So God, he's saying in the temple it is established, God is established, and in it is strength. So it is a very big picture here of honoring God. And in judgment, God does establish us. And he sent that judgment on Jesus Christ to die for our sins so that we could be established forever in his righteousness. And God met that standard and then redeems us. The beauty of God's work is Jesus took the punishment we deserve and we get redeemed. And we get all the blessings of God when Jesus took the punishment. And we get to have grace and redemption and bought back. And God looks at us in such a way that we can't even begin to fathom. You know, because we have been redeemed and have a new life and a new attitude. And God says, this is my new child. And sometimes we in the church don't look at each other the way that God looks at us. God says, this, per this child's perfect. This, per this child has been redeemed. And we sometimes have a hard time saying, well, God, I know this person. They haven't been, they're, they're not perfect. They're, 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 they've been a bad person. And God says, I've redeemed them. I've given them a new heart. I'm giving them a new life. Will they fail? Probably. But God still says, they're my child, and I've redeemed them, and, I'm, and they're perfect. And this is what we as Christians must be able to do, is going out and saying, looking at each other and saying, you are redeemed. You are a child of God. Because, you know, one of the things is we want people to look at us that way. You know, we want people to look at us and say, well, when we fail, we want to be forgiven. And yet, how many times do we not look at others to forgive them? And it's really an interesting dilemma because we kind of know that we want it, even though we don't deserve it. And yet, we're not necessarily willing to let others get that. I was listening to the story of Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul. He's persecuting the church. And when he gets ready to go back to Jerusalem to be presented to the disciples, they don't want to meet him. Probably rightfully so. I mean, he's killed many of their, their friends and their, and their co-workers. They don't want to meet him. And it takes Barnabas to come in and say, he's changed. He is changed. He is a new creation. He has gotten grace. Then Peter goes out bold enough to go talk to Paul, uh, Peter, uh, go to Saul, and then presents him to the rest of the disciples. Even then, he was anticipating the fact that he, I'm going to go meet this Saul guy and I'm going to get arrested. You know, because they're all thinking this is some kind of trick. It's been three years since he got saved, but you know, it's, it's some kind of trick, and they're still not willing after three years to accept him. You know, that's a long time to not accept somebody's changed life. 
Ananias had it even harder. If you know who Ananias was, he's the one that was told in Damascus to go see Saul, who was coming there to arrest all the Christians. <laughs> Could you imagine if you were the one that was told that? Uh, hey, Ananias, uh, or, hey, you, I want you to go talk to Saul. He came here to arrest him, but I blinded him on the road to Damascus, and he's, he's converted. How would you feel if that was you being sent to see him? You know, you're going to go, uh, I'm not so sure about this. <laughs> and I'm sure Ananias went with great trepidation to see Saul, totally expecting to be arrested and, and thrown into jail or killed, because that's what Saul was doing. Probably trying to figure this is some kind of trick. Well, I don't know what I don't know what this you know spirit that I'm hearing is all about. But he trusted. How many times has God asked us to do something and we're going? I just don't know, God. Uh, sounds a little scary to me. It sounds a little dangerous to me to be doing this. And so it takes us that time to just step forward and do, because God has redeemed us. He has established us. He has given us a new life. And we need to really work on being able to see the new life in somebody. Does that mean that person's never going to slip and fall from their new life into their old life? No. But then when they repent and ask for forgiveness, we give them forgiveness. And we, we will look at them in that light. Does that mean we give them absolute trust? Probably not. If somebody has been a thief, you don't give them the keys, to the, the keys and the combination to the safe and say, I trust you that much. You're going to want to see that they have a totally changed life, and that's going to take some time. If somebody's a liar, you're going to have trouble believing what they say, but you've got to give them the benefit of the doubt as well and say, okay, we're going to give you this chance. And when you don't live up to it, then we're going to have to deal with the consequences of it. And this is the important thing. When God comes into our life, he makes us a new creation. New creation. He changes our heart. He gives us a new attitude toward people. Now, that attitude doesn't always work out completely, completely good. I was talking with a gentleman today, and we were talking about how each different person reacts differently to what God is te teaching them. Somebody who's new in Christ is still trying to deal with their actual physical, you know, physical excitement. You know, they're, they're in that place when somebody gets in their face, they're, they're, they're trying to keep themselves from hitting them. The person who's grown up when the, somebody gets in their face they may not even, they may not even re, you know, respond, but they get, they get upset with themselves because they thought about maybe responding because of where they are in their growth cycle. Neither one is right or wrong because both people are being dealt with by God where they're at. The new Christian, I don't expect any new Christian to be perfect in any way, shape, or form. I don't expect any older Christian to be perfect. And I do expect to see growth. You know, if somebody's been walking with God for 40, 50 years and they're still out there smacking people upside the head for getting in their face, I've got a problem with that. <laughs> but we look at all of this and say, he built these beautiful pillars. Beautiful pillars. Most of the work up so high that only God's going to see it. And they named the pillars... He is, he is established, and it is, in it is strength. Because worshiping God is where our strength is. If you want to change your heart, we change the way we think by washing our, our mind with the water of the word of Christ. We learn God's word, and it changes us from the inside out. And that's how God changes us. He comes in, he says, I don't want your, you working your own, your own uh, changes. 
He says, I'm going to come in you. I'm going to change you on the inside, and you will act differently because you are, you, because you are different. As Jesus said, out of the abundance of our heart, we speak and or do, if we take it to the extreme. You know, and that tells you, if you get to know somebody long enough, you get to know what's really in their heart. Because people can play at being, at being one thing, but if you get to know them long enough and you get to watch them when they're under pressure, how do they react? Are they still loving when they're under pressure? Do they still, are they still kind? Because those are, that's when things happen. That is when we kind of lose it sometime and say, you know, and, and our real inner thoughts come out. And we, we snap at people, we smack them, we, we attack, you know, we do unloving things to them. And all that does is show what is deep in our heart that hasn't been touched by God yet. Does that mean we're not saved? No, it doesn't necessarily mean we're not saved. It just means that we haven't responded in our heart to those changes. And there's more work that has to be done. And, but when you get around somebody who is generally doing better, generally doing good, and usually kind and loving, you know, we can be a little more uh, forgiving when they kind of lose it one time, when they're, when they're normally loving and kind. But if they're always nasty and mean, those are the type of people we don't want to be around. We're going, I don't want to be around you. And yet that tests our love as well. Because then we're to step out and say, God, you know, God tells us to love our enemies. Now, we all know that that's the easiest thing in the world to do, right? Love our enemies. <laughs> you know, and that's what we're told to do as Christians. Be kind to those who despitefully use you. And you always hear people going, well, they don't deserve it. Of course they don't deserve it. It wouldn't be a challenge if they deserved it. It's easy to love somebody who loves you. It's easy to be kind to people who are kind to you. It is very hard to be kind to somebody who is mean and nasty to you every time they're around you. It is very hard to love somebody when all they're doing is saying bad things about you, to you and behind your back. We need to be able to express that love, express that kindness to them in spite of it all. It is not easy. It takes God in us to be able to do that. We look at somebody like uh, Joseph. You know, Joseph's an interesting character when you read about Joseph. He's in Potiphar's house as a slave. He's somewhere between 17 and 20, 28, 29 years old. And Potiphar's wife makes a play on him. He is nowhere near home, hasn't had, to, had God to worship any, any time in recent days, is never planning to ever see home, never planning to be anything but a slave. And he does what every single man would do, runs away from the woman. You know, he had every reason not to. He could have said, you know, my God has abandoned me. He could have said, I'm never going to see dad again anyway, so it doesn't really matter. He, goes, he could have said any number of things, and yet he did what was right because God had such a hold of his life. You know, and I, I think it's important for us to really understand, you know, he had every reason not to obey, and yet he obeyed. Because sometimes we'll make excuses. We'll make excuses, well, you know, with this, that, or the other thing, and it's like, no, there's no excuse. That's when we have to come back and just repent. God, I really messed up. I really messed up. And there's times when usually my problem is just that. God, I thought about the wrong thing. I really wanted to go after that person that said that. Help me to have better thoughts. 
Help me to not respond in those ways. And it's where we're at at this time. Where we are at at the time is where God is testing us. For some of us, it's the action. You know, we've, we have already spoken before we think about how bad it was. <laughs> some of us had to think three or four times before we spoke, and, but you know, some, of, some get, get it stopped, but it's still not a good thing for it to be in the thought. Because that tells me that in my, deep down in my heart, I'm still having problems. And we need to be able to look at how God is washing our heart. And how do we wash that heart? We get into his word. We study his word. We get taught his word. We hear his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we need to be getting into his word to build faith. We need to be into his word to change the way we think. Because in Isaiah, we're told that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His thoughts are higher than our, than our thoughts. And he wants us to start thinking his thoughts. We will never completely think his thoughts, but the more we get into the word, the more we allow him to change us, the more our thoughts become like his thoughts. The more our actions become like his actions. What was his action? He came down, lived as a man, and died on a cross. Are we willing to lay down our life for other people? That's hard. We might say, for some people I might. You know, maybe for some. You know, not sure I'd do it for my enemy. <laughs> and yet God did it for his enemies. He, lay, he set by the example on it. And how many times do we react because we didn't get the recognition that we wanted? Isn't that what anger is really about? I didn't get treated the way I think I deserve to be treated. And then we get mad at somebody. We may frame it in any number of ways, but it really is the fact that I didn't get treated the way I think I deserve to be treated. And that's bad anger. Now, if I'm upset that you got treated bad, then it might be righteous anger as long as I control it. You know, Jesus went into the temple, his father's house, and he drove the money changers out with a whip. Now, that wasn't very loving by most people's concern, and I'm sure he wasn't going, get out of my dad's house. He's, he was yelling at them, get out of my father's house. You have made it a den of thieves. But he was honoring his father on that, and he had the right righteous anger on it, and it wasn't because they were hurting him. And this is one thing I've said to many people. If you're mad about something being done to you, I don't believe you can have righteous anger because you, your emotions are going to take over because you're defending yourself. If you're defending somebody else, you might have righteous anger. Might. <laughs> At least you can in that situation. But you need to be careful. Because it's right to be angry at somebody being mistreated. But just be careful how you let that anger flow. And Jesus, like, hey, Jesus chased him out with a whip. You know, there wasn't nothing nice by, by that, by people's standards, but he's saying, you, you have taken the reputation of my father and destroyed it. He told the, the Israelites to go out and kill all of the Canaanites and, and Perizzites and all those other ites in the, in the promised land because of how sinful they were. Their sin had been so much of a stench in God's nose, God said, kill them all because they're going to drag you down. And their sins were awful. If you, we've done studies on how awful their sins were. Okay, they were bad. They had no, no redemptive value to them because they had fallen so far into sin, much like our world is becoming. We're not there yet. We're not as bad as them yet, but we are well down the path toward 
that kind of lifestyle. Because we have all the sexual things, uh, perversions that are going on, and they're not looked down on anymore. We have people that are just willing to steal, willing to, willing to do anything to lie and hurt people. And right now, there's still a small amount of conscience left in most people. But it's slowly going away. And it says, this, as in the days of Noah, the end times will come. And we're getting close to that, because in Noah's day, if you remember what the Bible said, it says everybody did what was right in their own eyes. We are very close to that. We are very close to that in our world. People do what they think is right with no looking at what God is doing and saying. And this is important for us to understand. God does not let this go unpunished. He is going to move against all of this sin eventually. But he is so patient. He is so patient that he gives people plenty of time to repent. But when he comes out, repentance is over. We go back to Noah building his ark. He's preaching to the people for 120 years as he builds the boat. 120 years. He comes into the boat. God closes the door, and the rain starts falling. Now, you know what happened. You can know what happened when that rain started falling. After 120 years of being preached at, there was a lot of people outside that boat pounding on it to get in. Because all of a sudden, they realize maybe this crazy fool knew what he was talking about. There's water falling out of the sky that we've never seen before. But God had closed the door. It was too late. Sodom and Gomorrah, God poured down destruction upon them. He took Lot and his family out of the destruction, and then it was too late for everybody else. Destruction fell. Once God brings destruction, the repentance time is over. And we need to be, this is why we as Christians need to be evangelizing and sharing, especially with family and friends. You know, if you're willing to let the, let the world go to, to hell, that's one thing. But how many of us have never spoken to our family and our friends about Jesus? You know, we're saying, okay, you guys go to hell too? It's a sad place to, sad place to be at. Because without Jesus, they're going to hell, no matter how good they might be. And I do know there's some people that are pretty good people. I know lots of people who'd give you the shirt off their back and everything in their house and everything else if you needed it. But many of them aren't saved. Some of the best people I know do not profess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They're just living on their good works. And they'll end up in hell. And we, you know, we need to be able to share with people that they need Jesus. They can't get to heaven on their good works. Because good works are not going to do it. If the good works would do it, Jesus died for nothing. And he didn't die for nothing. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. We sin, we've earned death. But Jesus is holding out a gift saying, I paid for it. And could you imagine what it'll be like when, God stand, when people stand at the white throne judgment and God says, I paid your way into heaven and you rejected it. What more could you have wanted? What more could you have wanted? I paid the debt. And, and you wanted to do it yourself? And you can't? You know, and when we witness to people, so often we'll hear, well, I hope I'm good enough to go to heaven. 
If you get that question, you get that statement from somebody, I go, I've got really bad news for you, you're not. They go, well, you're judging me. I go, no, I'm not either. No one is good enough. And this is the key that we look at because every religion out there bases their salvation on doing good works. The idea that if I do more good than bad, I will earn the, earn the, the approval of God. And God says we can't. This is why Christianity is not religion. Christianity is a relationship with the God of the universe who died for us and dwells in, dwells in our heart. And he doesn't say, you've got to go out and do good things. This is the thing about it. I don't go out and do good things because I'm, because I'm motivated to try to earn my salvation or prove to God that I'm good. I do those things because he has come inside of me, he's changing the inside of me, and I'll, out come the good. And when it's bad, it's me. <laughs> So you all know, if it's bad, it's me, and if it was good, it's God. <laughs> but that's the way for all of us. It's the way for all of us. When, when things are bad are coming out of us, it's what is really inside us and who we are. When it's good that's coming out of us, it's God in us coming out. And that's what we get rewarded for. God coming, working out of us is what we're going to get rewards for in heaven. Okay, let's look at this next section. Verse 23. And he made a molten sea or a bath, ten cubits from one brim to the other, and it was round about, and its, height, and its height was five cubits, and a line of thirty cubits did compass around about it. And under the brim of it there were knobs compassing it, ten in a cubit, compassing the sea around about. The knobs were cast in two rows when it was cast. And it stood there upon twelve oxen, three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. And the sea was set above them, and all the hinder parts were inward, and it was a hand's breadth thick, and the brim thereof was wrought like the brim of a cup with flowers of lilies, and it contained 2,000 baths. Okay. He is making a great big washing area for the priests. Okay, and it's called a sea, bronze and sea, because the priests were to wash themselves and then put on their priestly garments and then go into the tabernacle. So he builds this great big, what he calls molten sea. It's 10 cubits from one brim to the other. That means that it is 15 feet across, just a small bathtub. Um, it is roundabout and five cubits tall or seven and a half feet tall. And then it says there was a line of 30 cubits that went around it. So he says that when they put a rope around it, it was a, th a diameter of 30 cubits, or about 45 feet. Now, with this situation, there are many people who will say to you that this is incorrect. The math on this, when they take these numbers, they say is not correct. That, that you cannot have a uh, 10 cubic, uh, excuse me, uh, Five cubit, uh, uh, ten cubit, ten cubit diameter with a thirty cubit round about it. Now the problem they have with that because they are right. If you use those numbers, it's not it's not the right right uh, circumference. However, if you looked at that last verse I read, it said that it had a hand breadth of a width a rim around it, which means you've got to subtract six inches from each one of those sides. And when you take the six inches away from that, the math works down to the perfect, 
to the perfect size within within about six inches, five or six inches. So the numbers are right. So every once in a while, this is one of those places where people say the Bible has an error in it. And the error works out just right when you read the whole, whole thing and you do the math the right way. All right? And I'm not going to bore you all with the math. I find it intriguing because I love, I love mathematics. But it, it is kind of an interesting thing because it is a supposed problem because they say that it should be 31 and a half cubits around it if, with a 10 inch, but you take away that hand breadth rim around it and it works out to virtually exactly 30. It works out to uh, within one, one or two inches of it. So that's close enough because a cubit, we don't know the exact size of a cubit. So just to give you that heads up, if you hear somebody tell you that this doesn't work out mathematically, point them to the end of that section where it says there's a hand breadth rim around it. Uh, well, we're going to get to there on the. Well, that's yeah, it is approximately well. Mine, mine is about the number I had was fifteen thousand five hundred gallons. It's when you we don't really know what a bath is. We don't really know what. It, there's a lot of water. There's a lot of water in this thing. Now, leading you, you already got me into the next possible contradiction that people will point out. A lot of times they will point to the fact that in 2 Kings it says it had, that it contained 2,000 baths. And they will go to 2 Chronicles 4.15 where it says it held 3,000 baths. So what we believe that it is is that it had a full capacity of 3,000 baths. And the normal capacity was a little down and held only 2,000 uh, baths of water. Because if you're getting in and out of it, if you filled it all the way to the top, you would be splashing water out of it all day long. So there's a re good reason not to fill it all the way to the top. And that's what most people believe that it's, the difference is. It had a top capacity of 3,000 if you filled it all the way to the brim, but they normally kept it under the, under the brim. So I'll buy that. It sounds logical to me. Uh, it's a lot of water. It's a, there's so a lot of water. I mean, something that's 15 feet across. We've got a swimming pool here, almost. You know, we're not we're not talking just about a bathtub. But again, if you go go back into the Levitical laws, the priest, especially when they were going into the temple, they had to bathe themselves completely, put on the linen garments, and then they would go into the temple with the linen garments because if they sweat while they were in the temple, they were unclean and could be could be killed by God. Huh? I don't know. It wouldn't have been wouldn't have been unusual anyway, but in that day. <laughs> but again, they had to be purified completely, and then they went in to see God, and they would take off because outside the temple they wore the woolen garments, the heavy woolen garments, and all of that. But when they went in, they had to be pure, totally pure, pure pure and clean, and literally they wore the linen garments so they didn't even sweat when they were in the temple. I'd be in trouble because I sweat all the time. I would not be able to do their job. I'd, I'd be dead. Uh, but that was the rules that God had for him. But you, but you look at this. He builds this great big bath area, 
and he puts it on top of 12, uh, 12 metal oxen. And so there's some kind of, has to be some kind of stepping stool, you know, stairs or something to get in. And this is not a really small thing. And it's decorated and they've carved flowers into it. And this is, and this is the, a whole thing that's built, again, out of brass. Because we'll find out later on, it's a brass, brass bathtub. You know, uh, and I agree with you. I don't know that I'd want to take a bath in, at the front of the temple. to, But it, it is what they did. It is what they did on it. And they would always be able to do this and, and be able to have their purification ceremony. And then they went in and they served God. And this was the whole thing. They did this whole routine to show that they were being purified and that God des desired purity. And this is the problem that we have as, as human beings and especially the lost world. You know, if I can just be good enough, I'll please God. Well, you can't be good enough without being perfect. You know, and this was what this whole thing was all about. You know, not that they were perfect, but they did everything. They would wash themselves and clean themselves. And the priests were probably the cleanest people in all of Israel because they had to take their baths every day in a, in a nation that probably took a bath once a month or once a year. Okay. We kind of think this is strange because in America we have this habit of taking a bath every day. You know, it wasn't so long ago, even in America, that we took a bath once a week whether we needed to or not because we were going to church. Right? And that was when you took your bath. Saturday night, you took your bath, and then you went to church that day, and you went, clean, went to church clean. And, and people thought Americans were strange because we took a bath once a month, uh, once a week. Many of them did it only once a month or once a month or once a year. Yeah, there's a lot of places. Even in today's world, even in today's world, there's a lot of places water is so precious that they don't take baths and, and showers very often. Yeah, there's a lot of places where they think you're, you're washing off all that good dirt that keeps your body from getting sick. You know, a lot of places are that way still today. One of the things when, when Americans go to Europe, they get offended by all the body smell because, because they, they, they take their bath once a week or once a month. Uh, you, go to, you go to the Middle East and it's even worse. Water is precious there. You don't waste it taking a bath. So, you know, we, we think it's funny, but it is, it is not, it's not abnormal in, in much of the world to not, to not think of that as such, such a big deal. The priests got cleaned every day. They, they would wash their hands and clean themselves to just make the sacrifices. And so we see this process of God saying, I want purity. I want purity and clean, clean people before me. Now, we, God is not for expecting us to be necessarily physically clean, but he says he wants us to repent. He wants us to confess our sins and to change who we are inside because he looks at the inside. He says, I'm not looking at the outside. God is not looking at, are we, have we taken our shower this morning and we're dressed up in our best clothes to go before him? He's looking at, what are you thinking about? When we come to worship, are we coming really ready to worship? Or are we coming and showing up and saying, okay, I made it. You know, Satan loves to attack people on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, for us Thursday night. 
you know, some of my worst fights with my wife have been on a Sunday morning, just as we're getting ready to go to church. Or when the kids were little or younger, it would be the kids doing something and we'd get mad at the kids. And, you know, we were really ready to worship by the time we got to church. It always is because he's, Satan wants to keep us, if he can't keep us away from church, he wants to make us not mentally ready for church. And I'm, we've all done it where we've come to church, we're not ready for church and we're not into worship, we're not into the singing, we're not you're barely into the message and then we go home and say, wow, I really wasted my time coming to church and in reality you did. Now God's word does not return void so it wasn't a complete waste, but as far as that particular day was, it seems to be a waste of time. And then there's other times when we come and we're ready for worship and we're, we're into the worship and we're worshiping God. We're not just into the music, we're into the worship and the message, we're, we're right there listening to the message and we're just like, wow, this was the greatest thing that ever happened. And Satan tries hard to keep us out of that frame of mind, which is our job is so important to be praying when we come into church. Pray when we get to church, be ready to worship. Because Satan's desire is for us not to be in the right frame of mind so that nothing good seems to happen. You know, and if that doesn't work, he'll bring the person that you really don't like into the church so you can be grumpy and angry that they showed up for church. Instead of, instead of the idea, I am so glad that person came to church. They really needed to hear God's word and I'm ready to see them. I want to see them change. But how many times do we see that person like, uh, and now we're no longer into worship. We're no longer listening to the message. Hopefully they did. <laughs> But, you know, but Satan will do whatever it takes to get us out of the place of worship. Because it is so important for us to be sitting down in worship and ready to hear. And if our mind is not right, we pretty much have wasted our, wasted our time. And again, I don't want to say it's wasted, but it really is wasted for that time because God says his word never returns void. So whatever hits your mind, whether you re re realize it or not, eventually comes out. And I don't know how many times you've done it, but I've done it a lot of times where I've memorized verses or I've heard a message and I'll be in the middle of something, not thinking about God, and all of a sudden that verse pops into my mind or a, a, something from some teacher pops into my mind that I hadn't thought about, maybe not even consciously remembered hearing, and yet there it is popping in. So it never returns totally void, but for that particular day, it may seem like it. When I learn, when I ever I read something and I'm not paying attention, I say, okay, I go back and I read the whole thing again. Then the first time I knew I wasn't at my right mind. <laughs> and that happens to us. There's times when I've had to go back and reread my portions of scriptures going, God, I didn't get anything out of this at all, and I have to go back and reread it. So is it Can you tell me? I would rather have people show up for, and for, for the sake of showing up because he says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and so much more as you see the day approaching. But it is much better to be prayed up and confessed up and ready to worship. Okay? Because that's why I keep emphasizing, even if you're not thinking you're hearing it, God says, my word doesn't return void. Uh, during the Vietnam era, when these uh, POWs would come back, Many of them went into the war having been raised as, as Christians or been around the church but had rejected God. They put together almost the entire Bible from different things that they remembered. You know, and these are guys who weren't Christians. They weren't like you know, us who you know, could quote dozens of verses you know, probably. 
but they would just eventually start putting things together. And one person would remember this verse, another person would remember this verse, another person would remember this verse. And they started sharing amongst each other. And God then touched their hearts and they started remembering more of the verses they had heard. When God puts his word in us, it's there. You listen to testimonies sometimes where people will go, you know, hadn't thought about God for 50 years and all of a sudden those verses that I learned in, in Sunday school or heard in Sunday school came back and convicted me. Many people's testimonies are just that. You share, you share, you witness to them and you didn't think you did anything to them and then that night the Holy Spirit talks them to them. Yeah. Hey, you thought that person was crazy, but what if they're right? What if it really is true? And once the Holy Spirit starts working on you, you're in trouble. You're going to respond eventually. Or you're going to totally reject him and, and be walking the other direction, but it's hard to fight against the Holy Spirit. We are, we are living in a time of fear amongst the world. We need to grab hold of God even stronger, knowing that he is in control. My hope is in God. My hope isn't in my hand washing, my, my hiding away from people. My, help, my hope is in God. Now I'm going to do the hand washing. I'm going to be, you know, do as much as I can to be safe. But that's not what my hope is. My hope for my retirement isn't in my 401k that is tanked. My hope is in God. My hope on my day-to-day -day walk is with God. He is sovereign. He is in control. And the more I realize that he is in control, the more I can have confident assurance that he is, in, that he is there and that he's going to make things happen. I live in a faith that is alive, not dead, because my faith isn't just pie in the sky. It is grounded in the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. My faith isn't just, okay, well, I think, you know, and that's not faith anyway. Faith isn't just jumping off the cliff and hoping that everything's going to be okay. Faith is, I know that I trust this. We all sit in these nice little metal chairs, folding chairs. You know, we have faith that they're going to hold us up because they always have in the past. They look, they look sturdy. They haven't, they're not bent. They're not, they're not uh, all, uh, crushed over there. But we want to keep that in mind. Faith is never just blind faith if it's valid faith. It is only faith when it is real. All right, and grounded in something that is real. The word of God is real and strong for us. All right, we're going to close. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you. We ask you to keep and guide us. Teach us to, to help reach others and be able to share our faith and to walk in faith with you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23 we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? 
Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.